Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. Today's episode is the first in our new seven-episode series titled Launch Series in collaboration with Trilogy Search Partners and Pacific Lake Partners. The series is meant to be a guide to preparing a search entrepreneur for their upcoming CEO role, the next major step in their career. Our episodes will focus on topics such as starting up a search, deal structuring, sell relationships, first 100 days, governance, and much more. This first episode focuses on conducting effective industry research with guests Aaron Perrine and Kevin Oxendine, partners of Trilogy and Pacific Lake, respectively. And to help introduce them in the topic at hand, Aaron himself will join along with Chris Hendrickson, a partner at Pacific Lake. Thank you both for helping introduce this first episode in our second series together. Um, it's a great episode on industry research, but would love to hear how you've kind of framed this series of episodes and what you're excited for with this upcoming episode on industry research. Yeah, thanks, Alex. We're so excited to do this again. We really enjoyed the last set of episodes. I think this set's going to be even better. And what we're particularly excited about is this opportunity to partner with Chris and the team at Pacific Lake to you know, really bring you a, a great set of investor and operator perspectives in this launch series. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, we were really excited when you reached out and, and asked to collaborate on this. And you know, just a big fan of the show, Alex, and the regular listener, so excited to be part of it. At Pacific Lake, we're big fans of anything that helps searchers and entrepreneurs go faster and have a better chance of success. And so we believe this series is geared that way and that this first episode in particular about industry thesis search really really targets how to get searchers off on the right foot and get them rolling into a successful search and then hopefully gives them the best chance of acquiring a company where they can have a great run as a great CEO. So excited to be part of it and uh, excited I'm not on this one, Aaron, and I get to hear you talk in a minute. Yeah, it should be a fun episode. It was a really good overview for industry research and getting going. So yeah, we'll dive right in. Well, thank you both Aaron and Kevin for joining the podcast, the first of this new launch series with Trilogy and Pacific Lake. This first one's on industry research. It's one that a lot of searchers are thinking about and it's a kind of an ongoing topic during a search and sometimes even after. I think it would be first helpful to hear a quick 20 to 30 second background from each of you. And that way we can set up our industry specific search and research topic. But Kevin, do you want to start? I'd be happy to. Alex, thanks a lot for having me on. My quick background. After business school, I led two different businesses. The first one, a services business back in Washington, DC. That's where I'm from originally. I moved to Boston and ran a software business for a handful of years. Both those companies had a, a lot of growth and a lot of company building and really enjoyed kind of being in that CEO seat. After exiting the software business via recap, I transitioned to Pacific Lake about six years ago. And I spend all of my time working with searchers, helping them along the path of trying to find a great business, working on closing the deal, and then being a really great CEO as they scale that business. My name is Aaron Perrine, and I'm a partner at Trilogy. Background was in the military at an, an earlier stage of my career, post-business school. I spent some time at McKinsey and at Amazon, and have been at Trilogy since 2018. And similar to Kevin, spend my time working with searchers, working with search-backed businesses, as a board member or just as a engaged investor and you know, spending a, a, a lot of our time thinking about the, the questions that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, certainly. Kind of diving in, there's... I want to first kind of set up the question of a generalist search versus something that's more industry-specific. But I think a better way to approach that initial topic would be hearing some of the different ways you hear searchers approach industry research and industry focus. Do you hear folks with 
I assume many are generalist and pretty open. Some have very specific industries, but there could be, I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of in between. Like what are the approaches you see searchers take to the industries they focus on for their search? The uh, first thing to say is, I think it's a, a little bit of a false dichotomy between just a pure generalist and a pure sort of industry focused search. And I, I think you're going to hear a lot today about why we believe really strongly in, in you know, really high quality industry thesis research and an industry focused search and a more narrowly focused search. Um, and there are some real advantages of doing it that way. You know, there are some macro trends that underlie that, you know, one of which is email deliverability is just it's just challenging and 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 getting more challenging there's there are you know more buyers than ever in the lower middle market and so searchers need to be able entrepreneurs need to be able to distinguish themselves in their discussions with sellers and and having a deep understanding or at least a credible understanding of the industry is is one way of doing that you know at the same time a private placement memorandum is really not a contract we we don't expect that searchers will necessarily acquire, you know, a business that's in, in an industry that's listed in their their PPM. People often move into adjacencies. They often move into new verticals entirely. And and you know, particularly later on in a search, they can be more opportunistic, and that can make sense. And we can talk about why why that makes sense. So, I want to emphasize up front that it's not as binary as I think some sometimes is presented or sometimes is the beginning of, of conversations that we have. So I, I, Alex, on that spectrum you just asked about, from one end is someone who is just totally indifferent on the industry. They just hope that they have a business someday that has revenue and hopefully some cash flow. To someone who, on the other end of the spectrum, only wants to operate a business in a very specific industry. And then in between, you have folks who very well have an industry thesis that they want to pursue, but aren't wedded just one industry thesis. They're comfortable moving from industry to industry, but believe that the hallmark of having an industry thesis, of being differentiated, of having perspective on an end market is a key way to build up, to buy a really great business. So, so that spectrum is actually pretty wide. There are searchers in all of those categories. We see varying degrees of success based off of which search strategy someone takes. And for that reason, it's a really important decision for a searcher as they're thinking about where do they sit on level of industry focus, level of industry thesis, level of of commitment to an individual industry, all of which could make sense depending on the individual's entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, you touched on it a little bit there, but that there's value to the ability to connect with the seller and find a good deal to industry research and knowing enough about an industry to, you know, quote unquote, speak the language of that industry to a seller. Where else does the value of good industry research show itself through a search? It's really, really powerful for a searcher to decide to fish in in the right pond so if you can pre-identify in a market in which you want to operate, hopefully there are macro trends that are driving long-term durable growth that you will be the beneficiary of when you're running that company. You know, industries that have good moats, that have great end markets, that have attractive business models, that have mission criticality, some of those types of characteristics. If you buy a business in one of those industries... What you're doing is you're you're getting in a boat that has kind of a, a wind at your back that's going to fill your sails and it's going to drive you for the coming years. Tremendously different than if you buy a business that actually has the opposite. And it's even a lot different than one that actually doesn't have strong forces in either direction, but is a rather stable industry. So the power of actually of having a great industry thesis, of buying a business in an industry that does have those types of tailwinds really can set you up for a very different type of CEO experience and entrepreneurial journey where you are scaling a business, where you are figuring out how to manage growth versus in a tough fight with your competitors, trying to maintain your existing market position without actually getting much yield for all of that effort. Yeah, we're starting to touch on what makes a good industry. And you mentioned a couple of them off the top right there, but 
what else would you add to the definition of a good industry or characteristics or anything else about an industry that identifies it as a one worth exploring further? Yeah, I think in, in addition, I, I really like the points that, that Kevin made. It, there's also, there's something about starting with an industry, you know, that's growing where the, where the pie is expanding. People talk about, you know, industries that are growing at yeah, maybe two times GDP as a, as a rough you know, way to assess that. There's also then, you know, I think some further industry research and diligence that you can do. So, so we talk about what the, you know, how big is the industry? What's the total addressable market? You know, search is an interesting, you know, kind of acquisition strategy where a huge TAM may, you know, may not be what you're looking for. And so, you know, and there, there's different reasons for that. But as a, as a, as a rough starting point, you know, we think 150 to $200 million as a, you know, as a, as a total addressable market might actually be right. And, you know, venture investors often would say, look, we want to see a nine or even a 10 figure market. We need to know that if this works, it's going to have this incredible ability to scale, you know, in some case cases, because of the kinds of, of revenue quality, that we are trying to underwrite to, that we're trying to help searchers find, you don't necessarily need that large of a business. Uh, another thing that's interesting to, to, to think about is, you know, who are the competitors? How fragmented are the competitors and what's the nature of those competitors? And I, th I think that's something you wanted to get into a little later in the discussion, but it's certainly worth knowing that up front as well. If I could jump in, Alex, I'd, I would try to simplify this down. What's a great industry? It's big, it's growing, it creates value for its customers and it has good business models. If it, if it has that, you should probably spend some time there. I, I think there's a temptation, and a lot of the business schools teach this, there's a temptation to want to be overly precise when you're looking at an industry. So you create a scorecard with 10, maybe 15 characteristics, and you rate it a one, a two, or a three, and you say, which one has the highest score? That's, that precision is actually not helpful because... What's the difference between a two and a half and a three or a two and a two and a half and one of those characteristics? And instead, simplify. What you're looking at is, in totality, is this attractive? It does this, is this going to yield good opportunities and an opportunity to grow a business to get to a, a really positive outcome? The reason why I'm emphasizing growth, and Aaron, you were just talking about growth also, is that Overwhelmingly, the return generated on a search fund company is driven through the growth of revenue, the growth of EBITDA, and the benefits you have of building a business that has more scale to it. And so if you're in an industry that's growing, that makes it just a heck of a lot easier. But would highly recommend simplify, actually, rather than make it more complex on the model of what a good industry is. If I'm understanding correctly, you're you're saying that there there's power law at place here or in action where you want to get kind of 80% there to realize that this is probably a good business and fill in the extra 20% as you go, the finer details of that industry, but look for generally simple metrics. Am I understanding that correctly? I, th I think that's right. So the big picture, is there enough growth? Does it create value for its customers? Is the industry big enough so you can actually build something there and also have enough potential companies to acquire in that industry. That's much more important than understanding kind of the level of detail on exogenous risk and customer concentration and a bunch of other factors at the industry level. You know, start at those few big characteristics. And then as you get deeper, yes, you want to fill in some more to understand it. But those should be your, your initial qualifiers. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think, you know, there's a, a couple specific ways that people, you know, might look at that as an example. We're seeing entrepreneurs using, you know, search tools like Grata even earlier in the process where, you know, you, you might have a, an industry vertical thesis. You know, you'd like to know how many companies, what, what, what is the size of the universe? And so, you know, we talked about the kind of total addressable market that you're selling into, but there's another sort of total addressable market from the perspective of your search. How many potential targets are there out there? And being thoughtful about that on, on the front end, I think is, is helpful as well. Is there a minimum number of targets that makes the most sense to pursue an industry further or, or what are the nuances with, with 
analyzing or evaluating the number of prospects within a, an industry? One of the key activities in search is list making, right? So you could sort of say there's this thesis development and there's a, an activity of trying to identify all the companies that fit within that thesis. And then there's a, a third bucket of, of outreach and, and, you know, I'm, I'm probably conflating a bunch of activities, but just in, in very broad terms, you know, you hear about uh, searchers in the, you know, mid nineties in the two thousands where, you know, you, the way that that research was done is, is, has really evolved. And so even in 2015, 16, the entrepreneurs were writing, you know, Python scripts that would scrape LinkedIn and, and build lists. Not the totality, but certainly the plurality of that activity now is happening in, in, in tools like Grata. But, but a question you have to ask if you can use one of those tools is, do I believe that that tool actually sees the universe? And when I, if I, you know, if I build a good enough query, am I actually, is it, do I want to rely on that data in, in, concluding how many targets there 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 are and i think in some cases that can make sense in other cases maybe not so much but it, you know in general just to try to give a, a concrete answer and kevin really interested if you have a different view on this i mean i think it's like it's it's hundreds it's probably not dozens and it's it's probably not thousands and so but you know a way to to just zero in on that is if you think about a four to six week campaign you know outreach campaign that you want to be you know, fairly highly personalized. You know, that's probably a few hundred targets that you can address in 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 that way over a four to six week campaign. If there's a dozen, it, it might be fine to get the lines in the water. But it, you know, in terms of you know the the chances of having meaningful owner conversations with that low a total number of targets might be less. If it's thousands, you know, you may need to think about you know narrowing that down a bit, only because the chances to really personalize that outreach is going to be lower. And so, you know, the chance of, you know, getting really meaningful responses and developing significant owner relationships might, might well be more challenging. I generally agree with Aaron's points that you need enough targets to be worthwhile, but not so many that, you know, like it, it is an incredibly fragmented market. Typically, when a business, when a market has thousands of prospects, it is just incredibly fragmented and fragmented for a reason. Something to really think about. I, I think actually a mistake sometimes people make when they're thinking about search is they actually have fragmentation as one of their criteria. You do need enough companies to actually pursue. But if there are tens of thousands or many thousands, it's an incredibly fragmented market today, and that's probably for a reason. It might be a, a, an industry that's not quite as attractive if you're trying to build a nice business. The one thing I would say is most businesses, I don't want to say most, many of the businesses, the very best businesses that we buy, when you actually look at their competitive set, it's less than 10. And so when you're thinking about an industry, you actually don't need to think, find an individual niche that has hundreds. But you need to find an industry thesis that's going to encompass potentially multiple niches that are attractive, that still fit under the same thesis, that serve that same end market where you can build credibility and at yet get some scale benefits of having enough prospective targets. So I think it's really important to put those two things together versus assume that the end market, excuse me, that the industry in which you acquire is going to have hundreds of competitors. That's just not the case for a lot of the best businesses. I, I think that's right. And I, I think it's interesting as we go through this discussion to think about where we're talking about software and where we're talking about more sort of, you know, laws of physics-based B2B services. So I get, you know, of course, in some at home services business, there might well theoretically be hundreds of competitors, but but you know really in that geographic area, there's a very small set. You know, for software, you know that could be a much you know much different calculus. And so, then, how would you evaluate other M and A activity within an industry or that specific niche? So, if you see other private equity buyers, other searchers, or strategics, or just general M and A activity. In, in what ways could that be a positive or negative signal to, for that industry or niche? It can work both ways. You know, there are, as an example, I think there are some healthcare provider verticals where there are a number of private equity-backed platforms. And, you know, to some degree, that, that, that validates the business model. It validates the, you know, ability of a financial buyer to 
strike a deal with providers that makes sense for for both sides and that's and it's durable and it, it may well mean that there's a, a really great pool of potential acquirers for the platform that we built later on you know on the other hand you know <laughs> the the opposite might well be true and and you know particularly in that same healthcare example i think we've seen cases where a, a provider's bias around you know working with a, a financial sponsor might well be based on you know their sort of industry understanding of what that you know what what they've heard from other providers working with a large private equity backed platform that might just not be the kind of way that they you know that they want to practice or or the kind of business that they want to be part of and so i i think from a so so one one element of it is what does it say about perceptions and biases of sellers in the you know in in that industry another another would of course just be competitive pressure right and if there's you know really strong operators who have who have created scale you know that 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 could well be a you know that could well be a downside i would generally not take it as a huge signal i would do my own underwriting on that space but recognize that if there's been a ton of buyer activity in a market for a long period of time particularly a consolidation that there might be limited opportunity it's hard to be at the tail end of a consolidated market as a search fund that you're trying to by the last few companies. I think that's a, probably a place you'd want to avoid. You know, there's sort of an, an additional, I, I agree with that too. There's an additional way that this comes up, which is, you know, search fund entrepreneurs sense that, that they're seeing, you know, other private equity buyers, that they're seeing other searchers competing for their, you know, for the same targets. And so, I think that it's, it, it, you know, in, in, there's a sense in which that's a feature of the search process rather than a, you know, rather than a sea change in, you know, the competitiveness of the lower middle market. In other words, it's sort of part of the phenomenon of search. There tends to be a point in the search where you've, you've, you've just come across a few targets recently that other searchers were also looking at or that private, private equity came in and, and snapped up. And, and it's, it's really hard not to, you know, feel like you have some pattern recognition on like things are just getting really harder rather than it's specific to the businesses that, you know, that you're looking at. I, that phenomenon, I think, has come up, even, you know, recently with, you know, with with particular listings in, in Grata, where if you are not doing, you know, fairly sophisticated query building, you may well be getting similar lists to what other people that are doing sourcing activity are getting. And so sometimes you have to, I think, you know, uh, sort of abstract a bit from the way that you're building the list and not necessarily apply that same logic to the question of, is there more competitive intensity in this part of the market for, you know, for acquisitions than I originally thought? Okay. So Aaron, we've had a similar observation of searchers bumping into other searchers at a higher rate than we have historically. And in every case, we've tracked it back to the searcher was using Grata as their primary data tool, as are many other searchers. I think this goes back to kind of the initial premise on why do you need or what is the benefit of having an industry thesis search and developing a real point of view on an industry, becoming an insider, having perspective. Because if you're reaching out to the exact same list that dozens of other people have access to with basically the same amount of insight on an industry that everyone else does, it's going to be really hard to make an impression with a business owner and for that business owner to say, yes, I think you could be the next CEO of this business and I want to sell this business to you. Yeah, I love that point. And, and you know, I guess for me and, and how we have advised searchers, the takeaway is not, it's not to not use Grata. And in fact, I think increasingly, you know, that's, that's not even an option. But it is to be, it, it's like each point you just made there, right? Either you've got to have, you know, more sophisticated query building that's, that's coming back with a different set of results, or you've got to really be, you have to be able to differentiate yourself at a later phase in the process in some way, either by having a really exceptional understanding of that business or by, you know, in some other way, having a set of experiences that makes you particularly good fit for what that seller is, is, is looking for. 
So I want, to make, I want to make sure we dive into how to make yourself stand out. What does really effective industry research look like that helps you stand out from others? But one step before doing that, what would kill an industry? What factor characteristic would kind of end the discussion for a certain industry or and or are there industries that you just will not invest in, period? So the, those key criteria we talked about a few minutes ago, big, growing, creates value for customers, attractive business models. You're spending time understanding an industry and it doesn't meet you know, some minimum criteria on those. It's time to move on. So that's number one. Number two, you find an industry that you think is attractive and you start talking to business owners and you prove one of those things actually isn't true. Your hypothesis like, is not proven out in those conversations. It's time to move on. And ideally, that move, moving on might mean going to something that's tangential, where you're able to use the knowledge you've already developed and apply that to something that's a 5 or 10 degree pivot away. Because that means you are still carrying forward this insight that you've already developed on a space from talking with a number of business owners or market participants. The other thing is if you go through an industry and you're really excited about it and you're extinguishing the opportunities, at some point, you also need to move on. Your time as a searcher is incredibly precious. And you could find a super attractive industry, one that we would all love to buy a business in. But it's just not possible to, to transact with one of the business owners today for whatever reason that might be. And if so, it's time to move on. <laughs> so you have to have a lot of discipline here of working through an industry making sure that it's validating your thesis and that there are opportunities to actually buy a business. On the second question, actually, let me hold on there, Aaron. Look like you were going to jump in. Oh, I, 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 no, I, I'm just agreeing with you. I think one thing I wanted to, to, to draw attention to is that, you know, that point of sometimes it's a great industry and there's just nothing available right now and you need to leave your lines in the water. And I don't know, I mean, Kevin, it just seems it's, it's so common that somebody does some initial outreach and they've moved on from a vertical and it's six or eight or 12 or 15 months later. And one of those initial conversations comes back around. And that's, it's such a great indicator that you have a, a you know, a real seller that the, the relationship you built with that seller, you know, really had some, some substance to it. So I, I don't think people should be afraid to, you know, set lines in the water and move on. Doesn't mean that you've, yeah, it's not that you've killed the industry for structural reasons around that industry. It just means, as you said, time is precious and you, you, you've got to keep the sourcing machine going. I, I thought it'd be fun. I, I don't know if you have, you know, we, we get asked all the time. I'm, I'm sure you guys do, do too. You know, are there any industries you wouldn't invest in? And I, I think one of the really fun and just intellectually stimulating things about what we do is, is you know, we are looking for certain characteristics of an industry. And in many other ways, we're quite industry agnostic. And in fact, you know, really happy to explore, you know, a new industry that meets the or an industry where we've not acquired something or where search a search fund has not acquired a business in the past. But you know, just just to try to give some a specific answer, I, I could think of two, you know, two industries where we just said pro probably not for us. One was um, a reputation management in the reputation management industry, and so this was a companies where they offer to th through some technique you know get problematic or or you know controversial web content removed and gosh the margins looked great very easy to to think that that the industry was probably growing you know not sure you had repeat customers but you certainly had reoccurring business but you know at the same time it was just I think that was the one time where it was, it just felt, it just felt icky. And, and there was, you know, some examples of, you know, some really, you know, terrible things people had done that they wanted, of course, to get removed from the internet. And they just felt like, look, that I'm not saying it's not a good business, but I'm not going to, we're not going to put our investors money into it. I, the, the only other, other example I could come up with was we looked at, at, um, pawn shop software at some point, which I actually thought was okay. Kind of, we kind of got our heads around that. A significant part of the revenue then turned out to also be title pawn software. And I'll just say, as a as a veteran 
anyone that spent time on a military base, you go outside the base and there's these title pawn shops. You, you know, drop off your, your, the, the, the title to your vehicle. And as long as you come back in two weeks with a $600 fee, you get the title back. It just felt, you know, very, very aggressive and just like something, just an industry we just didn't want to be involved in. I don't, I don't know, Kevin, if you have other examples, like, but the point being like, that's a very narrow subset. Like most of the time, we're very willing to think about a new industry and go down that road with an entrepreneur, there's, there's only been a, you know, very few circumstances where it hasn't been a fit for us. The thing I'd add to that is there are some business models that are just pretty darn complicated for a first time CEO. Heck, they are complicated for a second or third time CEO, but especially complicated for a first time CEO. Consumer retail can be one of those where you're managing bricks and mortar and having to choose real estate locations and selling to consumers and consumer taste changes and there's a lack of recurring revenue. Those end up being pretty challenging businesses to manage and ones that that we tend to avoid because of that. Think about some businesses that are commodities-driven businesses where the fate of the business is largely out of the entrepreneur's control. It's going to go the way that the commodity price goes. That's another business that we tend to avoid. So we're really looking for you know, really healthy business models in a growing market that tend to be asset light without those types of complicated elements in the operating model. So it looks, tends to look mostly like traditional search talks about B2B, recurring revenue services businesses, software businesses, some healthcare services businesses is really the, the key part of the fairway. So once you've identified an industry for kind of the next stage, which is deeper research into its characteristics and the way it looks and feels, what are some effective ways to find... It sounds like finding river guides can be helpful, like finding someone in the industry or getting on the phone with people generally through industry experts or conferences, or I've heard folks use Tegas for, for certain industry conversations as well. What are some helpful or effective ways to meet people in an industry and, and as part of your process of researching that industry? Alex, you already mentioned a few of the really good ones. Conferences, finding research reports, reaching out to a business owner. One of my favorites that's outside of that, and and in my opinion, is much lower risk, is talking with a salesperson who works at a company or used to work at a company in that industry. Tend to find that these sales folks are very happy to talk and share insight and wisdom. They have a perspective on the company that they work for, as well as the competitive set, because they've been selling against that competitive set for a number of years. And you can learn just a tremendous amount of like of about the end market and what the end market cares about around the service offerings, around what actually matters to customers. And it's pretty low risk. You're not going to lose out on an opportunity to buy a business. It's not going to be that hard to find someone to talk with. It can be someone who used to be in the industry or someone who's still in it today. That's a great one. I, I, yeah, I really like that. I, I was just going to emphasize, you know, that one of the the values of doing an industry focused search is actually just precisely the ability to spend time and in, in you know in all those kinds of activities. So the time to go to the 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 trade show, the fact that once you've had a half a dozen owner discussions in a space, you, you know, you, you've likely heard a lot of the questions or issues in that industry. And you're actually going to be at a point where you're a, a value added conversation for the next owner, because you have some, you know, you can have some interesting questions to, to, to talk to them about. It's, it's very common that by the end of a search, you know, an industry focused searcher is really a true expert at what's going on in, you know, the, the lower middle market end of that industry, such that they get like called by sellers to ask them <laughs> about their opinions on things. And that that's a great, you know, it's a great sort of feedback loop to know that you've really built a, a level of familiarity with the kinds of issues that, that that group of operators is facing. I know a searcher who in the middle of her search, while looking for a company to acquire, was invited to sit on a panel at an industry conference, even though she had not yet acquired in the industry. Like remarkable. What did she do? Were there certain extra degrees of research that she did to get in that position? She developed a network. She became an insider. She had perspective on the industry, where it was going, 
what an attractive business was versus a less attractive business within the industry and had even become known to the industry association because that was one of the resources that she had used to really get to know what was happening. I think developing... I'm not suggesting that every searcher out there should set that as the benchmark of, I should be more knowledgeable than most business owners. That is not a good use of your time. However, if, like Aaron said, the conversation that you have with that business owner is actually useful for the business owner and establishes credibility, that is to your benefit, especially in a world in which data and access and being able to reach out to a business owner is totally commoditized. I think this is a, it's interesting transition to another question. I know you're going to ask us, Alex, around someone's path experience, but but Kevin and I both know a CEO who, in a you know in a past consulting career, you know, literally helped write the value based care algorithm that CMMS you know uses to uh, you know compensate the industry in which he's now operating. And so you know there there are also times in which you know true expertise from you know, from a prior career can just be so, so helpful here. And you just can imagine the conversations with, you know, with operators that that entrepreneur had before he acquired where he was just able to go really, really deep. And that's, you know, another person who's routinely asked to, you know, to be on panels has a, has a a professional network that's, you know, that was quite deep, even, even going into a search. Yeah. That question around past experience, which I am curious about, is oriented around how do you tell your story and demonstrate enough of your expertise to owners to reflect the industry research that you've been doing and how much of that is influenced by past experience and how much you can shape. Like if you worked at a software company, is that experience somehow applicable if you're approaching someone in energy or healthcare industries? So how do you how have you seen searchers effectively tell their own personal story as in as a complement to the industry research that they've done. I think it's another really interesting choice. I think about a little bit about how entrepreneurs choose to set up, you know, their search websites, right? Where you're going to make some choices around the kinds of businesses that you're wanting to appeal to. And there's an interesting mix of telling a, a personal story, which can be very, very meaningful. Kevin and I's funds have both backed, you know, former NFL players, former race car drivers, just, you know, people with really interesting stories where even, even apart from industry expertise, a seller may well take a call because it just sounds like an interesting conversation to have that, that can work, you know, as a, as a veteran. And, you know, I, I know both our funds are, you know, enthusiastically back folks with military experience, you know, that's another example of a, just a profile that, you know, may well be able to have a, a sort of a generalist approach in some in some senses because sellers are willing to just you know have that interaction and 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 uh, take that take that call. You know, at the same time, boy, past experience can be really really helpful. Can be extremely helpful in healthcare. Be extremely helpful in 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 software. Of course, once you're starting to operate the business, but 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 you know, but equally in in having a really deep meaningful initial conversation and distinguishing yourselves from other entrepreneurs that might, you know, well be trying the same business. You know, my take is MBA coursework can be very, very helpful depending on the the industry. Past experience can be very, very helpful. You know, and and the one maybe watch out I wanted to 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 call out is I think there are times where there's a lot of folks with consulting backgrounds who come in to search. And it, it can be the case that, you know, work that was done in an industry where the, 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 the client was a you know, client of McKinsey, a client of BCG, a client of Bain, it, that may well just have been on a slightly different scale than what's happening now in the lower middle market. And so, you know, occasionally, occasionally that experience will have been so specialized or so specific to like sort of slight margin improvement and billion a billion dollar company that it just won't translate as you know as well but it, you know in general that that industry experience i think can be super helpful and relevant prior experience can really be a double edged sword it can be extremely positive like Aaron was just saying because it is a way that you can help establish credibility you can apply your form your prior experience and that knowledge into a conversation 
with a business owner. On the other side of it, though, it can also be limiting because every once in a while, I will see searchers who really constrain the areas that they want to pursue based off of things that they've seen in their past. All of their theses are related to something that they saw in their prior career. And that's how they believe they have to establish themselves. The reality is, a really smart, talented, driven person can become an insider in most any industry. If you apply yourself, if you get build the knowledge, if you build the network, if you find the river guide, if you go to the conference, if you talk to the former business owner, if you start talking to current business owners, you can build the base of knowledge that establishes credibility, validates your thesis, and sets you up to be a really great CEO in the space and someone who a business owner is going to want to sell to. Where it gets most challenging is when someone's prior experience might be in an industry that's actually not that attractive, yet they're still limiting themselves. Instead, go look for that big growing industry that creates real value for their customers and has good business models. Become an insider there, apply your time there. And you, you know, it's a little bit different, right? It's not as fast out, the, uh, out of the gates. And instead, you have to go slow to be able to ultimately go fast. But that sets you up for the next five to 10 years as a CEO of learning uh, and building credibility and establishing yourself and ultimately being able to buy a great business in an industry where you're going to want to keep building it versus a limited industry where you already had expertise. I think it's one of the great joys of what we do when you, when you get to see somebody who, who, you know, as you said, was, was not an expert at the beginning, not a true expert, but now is a couple years in and is really like one of the industry thought leaders. And and look, that's the kind of entrepreneurs that we're backing, right? We are we are backing people with the capability set to go into one of these industries and truly lead that industry over time. So man, I, t- I totally agree with that. And and it's the the ability to really believe in yourself, do the work and 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 get to that point is is I think a big part of of, of success in search. One thing we've talked a lot about is getting on the phone with owners and just being in person or at least talking with other people within an industry to learn about that industry. Obviously, there's other ways to learn about an industry. There's online resources, industry reports, perhaps there's podcasts or videos with key folks in that industry to listen to or study. How quickly should a searcher aim to get through kind of the resources available from a laptop and before getting on the phone with somebody like should that be a fairly quick process like there's there's the most value in talking to people i imagine there's the most value in getting on the phone with people in that industry but how quickly should one aim to get through any resources that are you can research very quickly on the internet until you get on the phone with somebody you know i think that really varies I, i and and i think uh, entrepreneurs that are you know still in in business school are spending you know some of the last part of business school thinking about an industry thesis you know using the usually kind of vast resources that that program has you know the same of course is is true for folks coming out of of large consultancies where they have really significant opportunities often to do to do industry research so i you know i think i think only the individual can know when they're ready to jump in. Sometimes people talk about, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to work on this vertical that's not my favorite vertical first. So when I get around to my favorite vertical, I'm kind of more ready. I, you know, when I'm on a backpacking trip, I'm kind of have the have the theory: just eat your <laughs> eat your favorite meal first. That that way, you'll always be even, you know eating the favorite one. I I I think you just jump in, and I think I think people can figure it out. I think there's a a characteristic of the entrepreneurs that we try to back and enjoy working with where they're they're really resilient, they're learning really quickly and it's it's not uncommon that someone's going to put a piece of knowledge to work that they learned 30 minutes ago in an owner call and then next owner call, you know, 30 minutes later. And so I think if you can if you can do that, if you can you know, take in that information, start to understand what's really important, you know, you can do that in Certainly, certainly in weeks and, 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 and maybe even less. I think it's a mistake to try to learn about an industry from a computer. The, the scale and the level of the industries in which 
searchers are successful buying businesses means that there is no industry report for these industries. If you're looking at an industry report, you're actually two levels too high. Because the industries that, that you're really buying in, like the niches you're buying in, don't have an industry report. So if you're spending more than a couple of days doing desktop research and what you can find there, I think you're spending too much time. And get on the phone. It doesn't have to be with a business owner. You don't have to be doing outreach yet. But talk to industry participants. Go and talk to someone in the end market that that you know, is being served. Go talk to that salesperson. Call up the industry association. Talk to a former owner. Call a professor. Call someone who's invested in the space before. There are tons of different people. Call the banker or the broker who sells businesses in this industry if there's a specialist, not just some random banker or broker. Call the person who specializes, who sells half the businesses in that industry and learn a ton. You're going to learn more in one of those conversations than you will typically learn spending a day on your computer trying to do research. Applying what we've talked about on industry research to the actual PPM of a searcher, what do you look for a searcher to add and include in that PPM? How specific or broad we talked about, or Kevin, you talked about the you know key questions within an industry, kind of the simplified look at how an industry performs as a crucial part of all of this. But as as one starts to write their PPM, what should there what should there be there on industry research? How should that be written? It'd be helpful to have a fifteen point scorecard on each industry. I, I'm kidding. I just said don't build fifteen point scorecards, but a one pager on each industry, describing its size, its targets, the attractions of the business model, the growth rate, why you are attracted to this space, is incredibly helpful. In a PPM discussion, we're trying to understand how you think and and what a good business looks like to you. And so you're able to telegraph that really very clearly in your PPM. And the benefit is with all of the investors you talk with, you're trying to figure out, is there an impedance match? Does this invest is this investor excited about the types of businesses that I'm excited about and that I want to go run and where I want to be the CEO? And so you're using those conversations in order to figure that out. So you need to have done enough research, you need to have laid out enough to be able to have a conversation with a prospective partner in your search fund about that. Every once in a while I see where people just list three industries, that's insufficient. <laughs> you need to put more thought and be able to have a detailed conversation. That's, that's really the key. Yeah, I really like where you know searchers are trying to do trying to show something around the size of a number of targets i think that can be you know that can be helpful thinking i think a couple logos you know in the the verticals that a searcher has identified i, I think those can be really helpful it doesn't have to be a company that you've reached out to or that you even know is for sale it, it can just sometimes it can be really useful just to kind of click through to a a logo and understand the the idea that that an entrepreneur was 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 trying to get to and this might be a little bit geeky. I, I like when, you know, somebody takes the time, whether it's, um, you know, some, something like um, Helmer's seven powers analysis or, you know, Porter or SWAT or something, but just to, just to show how you've thought through, you know, a, a, a company in that industry sort of right to win, right to have durable margins over time. And, and, you know, Kevin, to your point around the, you know, 15, know 15 point scales or, or like I, I agree that there's like a it's like a significant di digit fallacy sometimes in how those are constructed it's not that they're bad as think pieces right but it's it's more that what's interesting about them is is how a different you know a different line how, how they're relative to each other where their kind of relative you know strengths and weaknesses are or what it shows about how someone's thinking through the industry versus hey this was a one this was a this was a four that you know, that, that, that tends to be, it, it's fine, but it's, it's not, I think, sufficient in itself. We talked about a number of tools and both of you mentioned using Grata as one of them, for example, I've heard of folks using Tegas. What, what other tools for industry research have been really effective so far? I would discourage folks from trying to find tools versus get in the streets, talk to people, use your network, build a new network. That is the key way of really understanding what's happening. 
Yeah, and and I think I should should say that our fund is an investor in in Grata. I, I think I think Grata is not where industry ideas originate. I think it can be a place where industry ideas are diligenced for some of the reasons that we've that we've just been discussing. And, and otherwise, I think I, I agree with Kevin. I, th- I think it's not. I think it's not enough um, when you're talking about broad trends to, you know, cite a McKinsey study about companies moving infrastructure to the cloud, and 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 you know, and that's all we need to know about this kind of cloud services company, right? Like, like y- you have to get deeper than that. We're in the kind of gritty end of the market, and I think those ideas most often originate from. You know, conversations with with operators in that space. I'd say this is also critical for actually buying a business. This is the characteristic that differentiates people who buy businesses to those who struggle in their search. Is do they have a bias to action? Do they have a bias to build connections with others? Are they engaging in conversations? Are they taking what they're learning, taking in, compounding it with more learning, with more conversations, with getting deeper, versus? a bias to analysis and research. Lean in, apply yourself, get out there, good things happen. Anything about industry research I haven't asked about or we haven't talked about yet that's important to mention? I would say I think there are a couple of levels of industry research. We're talking about industry research to develop an initial thesis. When you're actually diligencing a company you should already have great insight on an industry if you took this search approach. And so that actually is super streamlined. But you're going to revalidate elements of the industry on how it impacts this specific company that you are then under LOI with or that you are diligencing. So it's, I just want to call that out. There are two different levels of industry research. One, top level, would I be want to buy a business here in this industry? The second one is, for this specific company, how does it fit into the industry? Is it positioned well to succeed vis-a-vis its competitors? And don't confuse the two. Thank you both so much for coming on this podcast and this first episode in the series this year. Always enjoy chats about preparing for a search and especially industry research. It's a Really interesting topic with, I think, a lot of depth. So this has been really fun. Thank you both for sharing. Thank you, Alex. for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.